The tribulation will be a time of trouble unlike anything the world has ever seen. It will be a time of cataclysmic judgment that affects the entire world. But what's the purpose of the tribulation? Is it just God throwing a tantrum and getting all of his anger out on the world and on the people who dwell in the world? Or is there more to it than that? We'll talk about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we are headed towards Revelation chapter 6, which is where the event we call the Tribulation begins. We've uh, ended the church age, which we spoke about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We've gone to the throne room of heaven in chapters 4 and 5, where the Lamb was took possession of the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. And now we are, again, ready to talk about the seven-year tribulation. Now, before we go any further, for those of you who are purists and technical people out there who are looking at me or looking at the video saying, oh, there's no such thing as a seven-year tribulation in the Bible. That's not the right term. You're technically right. There is no period of time in the Bible called the seven-year tribulation. That term is not used. Tribulation simply means trouble or turmoil. And that this seven-year period of time is never called the tribulation in the Bible. In fact, I've even argued that it's the last three and a half years are not called the great tribulation. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus refers to the last three and a half years of this period as a time of great tribulation. It will be a, there will be great tribulation, but he doesn't give it that proper title. Again, great tribulation simply means a great turmoil. And we've had periods of great turmoil throughout our history, but none like this. So for all you technical people, yes, I, it isn't, there's no such thing as a seven-year tribulation. But I will continue to use that term because it is, it is something that's familiar to Christians. And as we well know, as, as you should know if you've looked into the tribulation at all, it is a time of, of great cataclysm. Um, cataclysms, uh, incredible things happen. You have a fire and brimstone raining down. You have the oceans and rivers turning to blood. You have these four horsemen riding around and, and just slaughtering people, bringing war and famine and pestilence and death. You have demonic locusts. You have the darkness happening all over the earth. You just have incredible devastating things happening and millions and if not billions of people human beings dying during this time this time of judgment what's what's the purpose of the tribulation this is something that's actually kind of bothered me if i'm going to be completely honest with you if the purpose of the tribulation which is is to judge man if it's god's final judgment on unredeemed man then there's something about it that seems a little bit unfair if you, if you think about it because why does this final generation get all of God's wrath? Let's say the tribulation were to start next week, hypothetically. Well, then people who are alive today, who are unrepentant, who are sinners, will get all of this seven years of just absolute devastation. What is it about this generation that makes them so worthy of it and not previous generations? What about all of the people who have lived and died who were horrible, evil people throughout the years and centuries and millennia who never never taste this? Like, Adolf Hitler, for example, he was evil man. He's never he's he's already dead. He's never going to taste this this horrible uh, judgment that God has. Stalin is dead. He's never going to taste it, this this this, uh, this judgment. Mao Zedong, Attila the Hun, uh, Vlad the Impaler, the people who ran the Inquisitions in the medieval times, some of the you know evil uh, rulers and dictators of the of ancient times who again just slaughtered people wholesale. I'm just horrible, unrepentant, evil people. They're long gone. 
if this is God's judgment on human beings, they're not going to get any of, the, of, of this particular judgment because they're long gone. So why, why, why is it fair? How does it, is it fair? Well, here's the thing. If that's true, if the purpose of the tribulation is just to punish mankind, then it, it actually isn't fair for those reasons I just gave. There are people who will be in the tribulation who will suffer who aren't nearly as bad as people who are not going to suffer because, again, they're already dead and gone. And that bothered me until I began to understand the reasons for the, the, the tribulation. And I will tell you right now, the purpose of the tribulation, the primary purpose is not to punish mankind. Now, there will be mankind will be collateral damage of the tribulation, but that's not the purpose of it. So what is the purpose of the tribulation? Well, in order to understand that, we need to take a step back and look at the big picture of God's plan for humanity. And that plan is, is, is acted out through the so-called dispensations or these different eras of time where God has dealt with man differently. We talk about that a lot in Faith by Reason. There was the dispensation of innocence with Adam and Eve. And then there was pre-flood. And then there was Babel. And then the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then there was the period of the law. And then there was the church, which just that period of time just ended as of uh, Revelation chapter four. So the next and final dispensation in God's plan should be the period of time we call the millennium. So now that the church is taken care of, is raptured. And if you want to get into the rapture, we talked about that the last two episodes. You can go there again. I'm not going to get into it. But let's just say the church age has ended. That sixth dispensation is done. So why don't we just go into the seventh dispensation immediately? What is the point of this time in between it? Because the tribulation occurs between the sixth and seventh dispensation. The purpose of the, the reason that it ha, we have to have this period of time, this gap of time between dispensation six and seven is because there are some loose ends that God needs to tie up before we can go into the kingdom age. And that's the purpose of the tribulation to tie up some loose ends that need to be taken care of that are required to be taken care of in order for the millennium the kingdom of the millennium to come into play. And there are two big picture uh, things that need to be taken care of in order for the millennium to happen. The first is that the Jews have to finally accept their Messiah because the, the, the seventh dispensation, the millennial kingdom is very, very Jewish. And in, in order for the kingdom to be fully inhabited, the, the Jews have to accept their Messiah, which they haven't done yet. So that needs to be tied up. And secondly, the people who are currently occupying the world spiritually, the spiritual evil, Satan, the fallen angels and demons, they need to be kicked off the planet. They need to be put away and taken out of they, they need to be taken, taken out of the way in order for the millennium to come in. And that's the purpose of the tribulation to get Israel to accept their Messiah and to get rid of the spiritual evil that is currently occupying this world, which Jesus has title to. So let me explain that in detail. The first thing to understand is that God is not done with the Jews, with the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We talked about that when we uh, had our, our little mini-series um, after the Church of Philadelphia. We talked about those who say they are Jews that are not, or the synagogue of Satan, so forth and so on, people who are, who are claiming to be Jews. And, and some of them say that the Jews forfeited their, their right to the kingdom when they rejected Jesus. And I, I, I go into detail about people who think that and why they think that. But the bottom line is that simply is not true. The Jews did never forfeited their right to the kingdom because their right to the kingdom was never based on their behavior. It was a unilateral covenant that God, Jehovah, made with Abraham. 
he when when they did the ceremony for the covenant to to uh, confirm the covenant covenant excuse me god did the that act himself god walked in between the the you know, the animals that they cut apart for the covenant by himself so it was it was all on him god made that unilateral promise to abraham and god can't break that promise meaning that the abrahamic promise that abraham's descendants will be a part of this kingdom rule cannot god can't renege on it but there is the problem the problem is in order for the jews to come into the kingdom they have to accept their king their messiah which they corporately did not do in the first century at jesus's first advent and the other problem is that god needs them to do that but he can't make them he 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 needs the jews to accept jesus as their messiah but he can't force it but he can't force it, but he can make it. He can make a very, very persuasive argument that they should accept Jesus, and that's what that's one of the two main reasons for the tribulation to uh, to, to to get the Jews to finally accept their Messiah. How does he do that? By making things so difficult on them that they finally realize their mistake. One of the most common titles of the tribulation is called is the is the time of Jacob's trouble. As we saw earlier, Jacob is the patriarch of the Jewish people. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So this period of time, is, again, has a specific focus on the Jews. And when, they, when the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they were corporately blinded temporarily by God, as we saw in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's temporary blindness. And so it's going to take, and this blindness has been hard for them to shake off. For 2,000 years, they still have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And it's going to take an extreme situation to wake up the chosen people. It is important to note that this is not Jesus' preferred method to put them into tribulation. He says he would he would have preferred to gather them together as a, as a hen uh, gathers her chicks. He wants to you know hold them and, and keep them close to him and be gentle with them, but they refuse. They they would not. And they, because they're basically a stubborn people, God calls them several times in the Old Testament a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And Satan will actually end up being the instrument that will ultimately drive the Jewish people to their destiny. You see, Satan has a special hatred of the Jews and has inspired a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism throughout the ages and up to this present time, where you have religious nut jobs who display their unnatural hatred for Jews on a practically a daily basis. Just turn on the news and see what's happening in the Middle East. And a large part of the reason is, is that they are God's chosen people and the physical progenitors of the first incarnation. That's why Satan hates them so much. Jesus was a Jew. But again, with Jesus' victory on the cross settled 2,000 years ago, the question might be, why is Satan still so antagonistic towards them? Jesus won. Why is Satan still angry? Well, it's because the Jews are the, are the existential threat to Satan's earthly kingdom. Jesus will not physically come back to earth to set up his kingdom until the Jews formally ask him to. The, the, the verse in Hosea where God says that I will return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. So... God, Jesus being God, of course, this is, a, a, I think, is a messianic prophecy. Jesus says, he's, he, he's, I'm going to return. And that's, that was the ascension until they acknowledge what they did. So until they do that, until they acknowledge their offense and ask for him to come back formally, of which we will see in, we see in the next chapter of Hosea, where they do formally, and I have the verse up on the screen, where they formally ask, formally ask for him back. And then Jesus returns three days later. But until they do that, Jesus cannot return. And Satan knows this. And he has a vested interest, Satan does, in making sure that that request is not made. 
And the most foolproof way to guarantee that the Jews don't ask Jesus to come back is to make sure there are no Jews around to ask. And that's why Satan wants to terminate the Jews. Because until the Jews ask for Jesus to come back, he can't come back. We're kind of in limbo. And if there are no Jews, well, then Jesus can never come back. And Satan understands that. And when the when this tribulation time begins, when the church in the church age ends and the judgments of the tribulation starts, Satan knows his time is almost up. So he's going to crank up his anti-Semitism to an unprecedented level. The persecution of the Jews during the tribulation will make the Holocaust of the 1930s look tame by comparison. I mean, Hitler's Nazis killed one third of the world's Jews during the events of World War II. The Bible indicates that during the tribulation, two thirds of the Jews will be wiped out. Um, I have the, the verse for that um, in, in the show notes or actually in, in the blog post that I'll attach to it. And the tipping point will be an event known as the abomination of desolation that was prophesied by uh, Daniel the prophet and Jesus reemphasized himself in, in uh, Matthew 24 because it centers on Satan's false Messiah who the Antichrist that we will talk about quite a bit who he will set himself up so the first thing Satan will do before he starts the, the big persecution of the Jews during the tribulation is he will fool them into believing that his man the Antichrist is their true Messiah because one other way to keep the Jews from asking for Jesus to come back is if they think he's already here. So if they think the Antichrist is their Messiah, then of course they aren't going to ask for the real one. So Satan is going to do everything in his power to have to convince them that the Antichrist is the Messiah and they will for a short time believe it. But it won't last and then that's when they'll turn to the persecutions. But of course the abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist uh, betrays the Jews and sets himself up in the Jewish temple and claims that he is God and demands worship. And that's when the Jews will, will know that, hey, this is not our Messiah. This is not the guy who we, we thought he was. And again, we'll, we'll talk about this more in detail when we get to the series on the Antichrist, the series, excuse me, on the Antichrist. But Jesus warns the Jews that when they see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist set himself up in the temple, then you got to get out of town and get out of town fast. Don't even pack. Just get run because that's when Satan is going to start exterminating the Jews so that there, there will be none left to, uh, to, to call for Jesus. And, and, but God will make a way for the Jews. Um, he, he says pretty clearly in the Bible, and we'll talk about this when we get to Revelation chapter 12, that uh, he, he prepares a way for, of escape for um, Israel. And then that's when the that the end of this devastation of the tribulation, Satan will gather all the armies of the world or what's left of the world at this point and march them towards that. The last outpost of the Jews, when they escape, they're going to, God says he will prepare a place for them to escape to. And Satan will bring all of his armies to wipe them out once and for all. And this is when the legendary battle of Armageddon takes place. Now, of course, there's not really much of a battle. If you read about it, basically Jesus comes down, he speaks some words and everybody dies. So it's not, we call it the battle of Armageddon, but it's not really a battle. And, and Armageddon is, Armageddon, I'm going to get into this um, when we get uh, to, to Revelation chapters uh, 19, but I'll give you a little preview of it by dispelling one of the big myths about Armageddon. Most Bible commentators uh, relegate, not relegate, but they see um, Armageddon as the Valley of Megiddo in central Israel. And that's not what it is. Armageddon is Har Megiddon. It means um, Har is Jew, is uh, Hebrew for mountain. So it's actually, it's not a valley, it's a mountain. I believe it's it's the uh, the mountain of God right on the outside of, on, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. But we'll, we'll, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that later. Anyway, as I said, it's not going to be much of a fight. Jesus uh, comes 
and it, the Jews will call for Jesus. Three days later, he will come. He will come down to them and he will wipe out Satan and they will finally accept him as their Messiah. But before that, they will have to endure the horrors of the tribulation and, 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 the, and the horrors of satanic persecution. But that's the that's purpose number one of the tribulation to get the Jews to finally make that, to, to accept him. So that brings us to our second reason for the tribulation. The second reason for the tribulation is to again, kick out Satan. You see, Jesus took legal claim to the earth at the tribulation. He reversed Adam's sin and he has legal title to the earth. But for 2000 years, he hasn't claimed it. So what happens if you have property that you buy and, and you haven't and you don't live in it? Well, there's a danger of people coming in called squatters. What are squatters? Squatters are people who walking who are walking by and they see an empty, nice, empty house and they see that nobody's living there. And they say, you know what? Let's just break the windows, break the doors down and go inside and we'll live there. And that's what Satan's doing. You may be wondering if Jesus won the earth 2000 years ago, why does Satan seem to be in control? He's a squatter. Jesus has not come. He had not come yet to claim the earth. So Satan and his, and his demons and his fallen angels are squatting here because they're defeated, but they're just hanging out. So what do you do when you have a squatter? Well, for any of you who've ever owned property and you had the misfortune of having squatters in your property, you call the sheriff. The sheriff comes down. He looks at the deed and says, hey, you guys don't own this. Get out. And he points his gun at him and say, either get out or I arrest you. Well, that's really what's happening with, um, with, with Satan. So, so 2,000 years of history has shown that Satan's and his minions, they've been running roughshod over the earth while waiting for Jesus to claim his property rights. They obviously are not just going to leave of their own accord. And as we've seen, Satan is not exactly a good sport when he loses. So they're going to have to be forcibly removed. Also, keep in mind that this will not just be an eviction. It will be a judgment of all of the evil that they have committed on earth. Not that man has committed. It's because of what they have committed. You see, here's something that, that I want you to understand. And this is something that I've come to understand pretty recently. And it's been pretty amazing once I realized it. God's cataclysmic judgment is never reserved for men. It is only reserved for evil spiritual entities. Let's look at the times when God has given cataclysmic judgment, the flood. What was the purpose of the flood? Was the flood sent because men were being naughty? Well, of course not. We've talked about this quite a bit. The reason for the flood was because he, God had to destroy the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? The Nephilim are the progeny of fallen angels having intercourse with women, human women, and producing these uh, these hybrid creatures called Nephilim. I'm not going to get into all that. You can there's you can go to the supernatural worldview uh, category on on, on uh, faithbyreason.net. You can go into the dispensation of the flood, and I give all the reasons why that's true. Even though it makes you uncomfortable, yes, sorry, angels had intercourse with women. The Bible says so. And that's who the Nephilim were. But so this was spiritual evil that God was judging. And then if you look at the cataclysmic judgment at Babel, why why did God confuse the languages and just and, and devastate that period of time? It wasn't because they were trying to build a really high building. No, it's because they were trying to invade heaven. They were trying to create a, a gateway. Babel means gateway to God. They were trying to build a supernatural gateway to invade heaven, literally. And God says they would have succeeded if he had not confused their languages. So that was a judgment on spiritual evil. Sodom and Gomorrah, devastating. Why did he devastate Sodom and Gomorrah so badly? Well, it's not because of homosexuality. I know that's the common idea that Sodom and Gomorrah was God judged them because they were just unrepentant homosexuals. Well, if that's the case, then San Francisco should have been bombed years ago by God. But that's not. It wasn't because of homosexuality. When the men of Sodom, when the people of Sodom, 
because men in that sense didn't just mean males, it meant mankind. All of the people of Sodom were trying to have intercourse with the angels who came in to, to Lot. Remember the story, these two angels came to, to, to get Lot out of, of Sodom before God judged it. And what did, what did they do? They, they, everyone in, in the city tried to have sex with the angels. Why, because they were homosexuals? No, they were trying to have sex with the angels because they wanted to make more Nephilim. The, the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. The sin of Sodom was that they were trying to commit the same evil act that God had to flood the world for about a thousand years earlier. And I, I found this out recently when um, some excavations were done around the area of Sodom and they found uh, burial mounds of, of giants. The Nephilim were giants. The Sodom, the people of Sodom were trying to recreate the pre-flood times and that's why God had to judge them. And these final cataclysmic times of revelation is not about God judging men. It's about him judging eternal fallen angels and demons. That's why God could store up all of his uh, wrath and pour it out on this one seven year period because these spiritual entities are entities are eternal. The same ones that were inspiring Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and Vlad the Impaler and the Inquisitions and Attila the Hun and all the evil rulers for all the way back to the beginning. These are all the same entities, entities who are still around today because they are eternal. So God could judge them at any time and it will be a just judgment because they, the guilty ones have been around since the beginning of time. And that's what's going, that's what's happening. God only does cataclysmic judgment for unrepent, for spiritual entities. I say unrepentant because, well, it doesn't matter. Unrepentant isn't a fair statement because they actually can't repent. They're, they're, they're incapable of repentance. Um, that's something maybe we'll talk about um, at another time. Only man is capable of repentance. So God shows man eternal mercy, but he only gives his cataclysmic judgment to spiritual evil because they can't repent. And once they are judged, it's over with. God only gives man mercy. He gives us so much mercy. He's been giving us mercy for 2000 years. Keep in mind that the apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles, if you, when you read their works, they were expecting Jesus to come back to return for his church during their lifetimes. Why didn't he return? Because he's been giving us mercy. He's been, he keeps giving mankind chances over and over and over again to do the right thing. We keep wondering why hasn't God judged America? Why hasn't God judged Europe or Russia or any place that, that we currently see as, as, as a bastion of evil? Because God always gives us as much mercy as he possibly can. God takes no pleasure in judging us. His pleasure is us turning from our wicked ways and coming back to him. And he keeps extending mercy for as long as he can. But his mercy eventually has to end, but it's not going to end because he no longer wants to be merciful for us. He's, he's towards us. He's, it's only going to end when things get so bad spiritually that he that he has to judge the spiritual evil. And the only way that we get judged for it is if we align ourselves with that evil. The only human beings who are going to be judged during this time are evil beings who refuse to accept Jesus, who have refused God's provision for salvation. And they have instead intentionally aligned themselves with spiritual evil. At the three and a half year point of the, of the seven year period of time we call the tribulation, everyone's going to have to make a choice as to whether or not they're going to take something called the mark of the beast. If you take the mark of the beast, you are you are basically stating your will that you are on Satan's side. And once you do that, that's when God will pour out his wrath because you have made a definitive, un, unrepentant and irreversible uh, 
statement of your again statement of your will that you are on Satan's side. You cannot come back from it. I, be, I, I think there's a really specific reason why you can't deny Satan after you take the mark of the beast. And I'll talk about that when we get there. But when you take that mark of the beast, you are saying that you are you are, you are permanently and irreversibly on the side of Satan and the fallen angels. Then you deserve their punishment. Not because you're a bad person, not because you are evil, have done bad things, but because you have chosen Satan's side and you get that's why you get it. So the purpose is not to punish man it's to punish and judge these demonic entities and to kick them off the planet. You basically rejected God's infinite mercy. So how does God do this? How do you force these incredibly powerful entities off a planet that they've hunkered down in and made their home for millennium? millennia rather you you literally go old testament on them the bible offers extremely vivid descriptions of what god's wrath would be like during the tribulation i mean the entire book of zephaniah sounds like it should be read by samuel l jackson from pulp fiction if you, for those of you who've seen that movie and seen the way he the way he uh, orates during that i mean it is devastating zephaniah zechariah joel hosea um all the so-called minor minor prophets you will find just incredibly vivid virtually gory um, descriptions of what what's going on here. The book of Revelation, frankly, is as, as devastating as the stuff is in Revelation. It's actually not the most descriptive uh, uh, recording of what happens at the end times. Again, the minor prophets are. And I would suggest you go back in, into those and in, in read some of those uh, books and really see the anger that God has. And he's not pouring it out on men. He's pouring it out on these unrepentant, these fallen angels and demons. And as we will see, God will basically yank Satan and his demons down from their exalted domains and down to earth to be judged. And by the time God is done, the waters of the earth will have turned to blood. The heavens will be decimated. The mountains and islands will be gone. Hailstones the size of, size of beach balls will have battered the planet into submission. The skies will be blackened and the earth will literally be shaken silly. The, the Bible verses say all of those things that the earth will weave and back and forth like a drunkard. I mean, and for any of you who ever seen a drunk person try, trying to walk, that's what it's going to be like. It's, it is going to be worse than any apocalyptic movie you have ever seen. And so after, you know, smacking his enemies around for three and a half years, Jesus will finally be ready to come down and physically claim the earth for himself. But even with their kingdom devastated, Satan and his fallen angels will not relent. In one final and futile show of defiance, they will attempt to prevent the second coming by physically confronting Jesus, which is as ridiculous as it sounds, at least on the physical level. I mean, can you imagine pointing guns and tanks and whatnot at Jesus coming from Jesus coming from the clouds? It makes no sense. Satan and his angels, they're evil, but they're not stupid. Why would they be doing that? Well, remember that we see through a glass darkly. We see, see things physically. And if you are only looking at Revelation from the physical standpoint, it's going to make no sense that you're going to try to shoot a bullet at Jesus coming out of the clouds. You have to look at it from the spiritual point of view, too. And I want to make that point very clear here that and when we will make it throughout the the judgments as we look at them through the tribulation, that these things are not just physical. There's also a spiritual component and that spiritual component, the spiritual component is more important than the physical component for every physical thing you see happening. See, hurting the blood. Well, that's pretty devastating. It's going to really you know, mess things up ecologically. But what is it doing spiritually? Well, when you understand that the waters and the seas are the domain of, of, of Satan to, and fallen angels, and, and, and I'll show you biblical, biblical evidence of this, 
and that fallen angels have been bound in, in the seas and in the waters. And, you, and you'll, you'll see evidence of this when you look at the Sea of Galilee and how Jesus had to rebuke the waves and the waters. And when you look at what, what the Leviathan is in, in Job and elsewhere, and when you see why demons were afraid of water, there's something about water that has a spiritual component to it. And by turning these waters to blood, it is a spiritual judgment as well as a physical judgment. And these things happen over and over again in Revelation. And if you can, if you see the whole picture, if you can see it three-dimensionally or multi-dimensionally, that it's not just God devastating the ecology of the world, but there's a spiritual component behind it. Revelation will make much more sense. And these judgments, which just seem almost kind of random and 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 sometimes over the top, there's there is there is sense to them. God doesn't just randomly do things, he does things for a specific purpose. So there's a physical and a spiritual component and we will look into all of them. So the byproduct of what's happening spiritually in these judgments that are, are affecting the spiritual, spiritual world are physical cataclysmic events that happen that again will affect the earth itself and the people on earth who have aligned themselves voluntarily with the dark side. So as always, keep the supernatural point of view in mind. We've talked about it before. If you want to dive into it, go to the categories in the right navigation bar on the supernatural worldview and, uh, and, and read up on it there and listen to the podcast as well. So that's it in a big picture um, viewpoint. That is what the tribulation is all about. It is to get the Jews to call on Jesus, accept Jesus and call upon him so that he can physically return and set up his kingdom and also to take away the kingdom, the false kingdoms that Satan has set up on the in the world and to kick him off the earth so that Jesus can come down and claim what is his. And yes, and, and to judge the evil people, evil spiritual rulers of the world for all the evil that they've done for the past several thousand years of human history. And so that's why it is so devastating. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to be covering in the next episode. Now, before we get into Revelation chapter six and the four horsemen, the legendary four horsemen of the apocalypse, I need to give you one more pre uh, preview, um, one more preamble, one more introduction before we get there. This current um, broadcast is this current episode is just uh, is, is the introduction to the tribulation itself. But I want also give you a, an introduction to my point of view on the tribulation, specifically the very beginning of the tribulation, because I'm going to introduce an idea, a theory that, as you know, with Faith by Reason, we do very controversial theories here. And I have one that I have a different take on the first part of the tribulation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that I have not heard completely any place else, which means it's probably wrong. But I, I think there's some biblical reasons to at least give it some serious credence that gets some credence and, and is, it makes it worth serious consideration. And that it is the idea that there is a significant gap of time between the end of the church age and the so-called rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. I don't think that the tribulation will begin immediately after the rapture. I think there will be again a gap of time, maybe months, maybe years could be. And but during this period of time, I think there's going to be some interesting things happening. And I believe that the Revelation chapter six, the four horsemen of the apocalypse is not the trip a part of the beginning of the tribulation. It's actually talking about that gap of time. 
because, again, as I said, the the rapture does not start the tribulation. The Antichrist and his covenant with with Israel starts the tribulation, and there is nothing in the Bible that that definitively says that that covenant happens immediately after the end of the church age. And I think there are some reasons to believe that there is a gap of time. And during that gap of time, I believe Satan is going to be doing some very interesting things. And I think those interesting things are what the four horsemen of of the apocalypse are all about. So what I'm going to do in the next episode is introduce my theory of what's going to happen in this gap of time between the end of the church age and the the, uh, rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. Then after I do that, the episode following, I will get into Revelation chapter six, and I will start by giving the traditional view of the four horsemen that is accepted by most commentators. That'll be two episodes from now. And then the episode following that, I'm going to give you my thoughts on exactly who the four horsemen of the apocalypse are. And it's going to take several weeks. I may only cover one or two horsemen uh, per week because there's that much detail because this is something new because this is something you probably haven't heard before I want to give you a ton of detail on it I want to make sure you understand my point of view whether you agree with it or not I at least want you to understand what I'm saying so I'm going to start next week by giving you the reasons why I think that about this gap of time between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation and then we'll go into Revelation chapter 6 after that okay uh, thank you for watching and listening I appreciate it Uh, please subscribe to Faith by Reason. You can do so here on YouTube by just hitting the subscribe button. Please like this video so it will be, so more people can see it and um, hit the notification bell so you can be notified when new episodes are available. Also subscribe on faithbyreason.net. Put your email into that right navigation area and you will get these episodes as soon as they are available every week. And I will talk to you next week when we talk, when I talk about something that I call the dispensation of the serpent never heard of it before i know because i I made it up (laughs) we'll talk about it next week all right talk to you then